Uh, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. And we start off the new year, happy new year, with the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll break Matthew's work into different sections. And our first series will last us about eight weeks as we consider the Gospel of Fulfillment in chapters 1 through 4. Now, all the Gospels are unified accounts, but each have unique aspects to the portrait that they paint of Jesus. Now, our scribe Matthew is a faithful follower of Christ, an apostle who is also known by the name Levi. Matthew has fulfillment on the brain, perhaps more so than the others. Ten times through this book, we'll come across them all, he uses this phrase, thus it was fulfilled. Over a dozen additional times, similar fulfillment language is used. In fact, Matthew has 55 direct quotations of the Old Testament, whereas the other three total combined only have 65. Even if you counted not just explicit quotations, but all the allusions and echoes of the Old Testament, well, Matthew would double the other three Gospels. So at the start of any book, we need to ask and I think answer a few questions. Who wrote this? Well, it's our tax collector friend, Matthew, turned follower. When was it written? Well, after the death of Jesus, the oral and written history of his life was immediately documented, likely first by Mark and then Matthew. This gospel was completed in the early to mid-60s. Why was it written? As we'll come to find out throughout our journey in Matthew, the portrait of Jesus' life was documented and recorded by Matthew to put Jesus at the center stage of redemptive history as the one that Israel and the world had been waiting for, the one that you've been waiting for, whether you realize it or not. So we start at the beginning, and if you haven't, please grab a copy of the Scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 1, will be in verses 1 through 17, and we look at the redemptive family tree. Now, genealogies have a way of feeling dry. Often we skip over them, at least the names we struggle to pronounce. And just so you know, I have on my next page here, some of the names listed out phonetically, so hopefully I don't mess them up as I try to say them. So a fruitful question we have to ask ourselves as we come to a list of names in chapter 1 is, why is this here? Why am I reading what I'm reading? Why has God placed a genealogy for me to have? We can be confident God has reason, so I think we should dig in. Now, our main point, the main takeaway this morning is simply this. Jesus came to save. Now, I know that sounds very spiritual and religious on a Sunday morning, especially off the heels of a Christmas season. And it may seem like a no-brainer. Duh, Jesus came to save. But the identity of Jesus is intimately connected to the purpose of Jesus in Matthew's writing. So if you understand, if you get this, if you understand who Jesus is, his identity, well, then his work and his mission become clear. And it answers a lot of questions as it relates to the nature of God and the life that you lead today. So the identity of Jesus' kids was quite the tea back in the day. It was all the gossip and buzz. Who is this man? 
that the wind and the sea obey? Who is this man who forgives sins? Who is this Jesus? Where did he come from? Why did he come? And for us this morning, how does the identity and the mission of Jesus affect me in my season of life? Can he save me? Not just from hell, but can he save me from myself? Can he save me from my circumstances? Can he save me from secret sin, from depression, from boredom, from dryness? Can he save my family situation? Can he save? Well, God has a word for you and I this morning, so would you please read with me in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Deep breath. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. You, you guys with me still? One more section. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of the Shetil, and Shetil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zad Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom, of whom Jesus was born, who's called Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, this is God's word. And every word... Every jot, every tittle, every comma has some meaning and purpose. So I have three considerations for us, believe it or not, this morning. And the first is this. His genealogy that we just read through, his genealogy fulfills promises of old. Now, the very first sentence in the New Testament, the first sentence in Matthew's gospel tells us right away, that if we don't know and understand the Old Testament, we're going to miss some stuff. 
So I want us to look at three names, but not in order. First, there is that name and combined title in verse 1, Jesus Christ. Now, as many of you may be aware, Jesus is a Jewish name. Our English Bibles transliterate it to the spelling we see. But in Hebrew, his name would be Yeshua, a common substitute for the name we know as Joshua. And it's less significant today, but back in Jesus' day, the meaning of a child's name, it was critical. Now, some of us, moms, we're very concerned about how our children's names sound and if they rhyme with your grandmother and with the other children or with your middle name. Well, the Hebrews, they didn't care about this as much, but the meaning of names has significance, I think, even today, right, to a degree. So still today, you'll see expecting mothers and expecting fathers looking at long lists of names to discover the meaning of those names. Now, here are some of the most popular baby names of the past couple years, according to one website. Did a lot of research on this on Google. So here's some popular names. Luna. Luna means moon. Luxury. That's a girl's name, and it means high maintenance. I mean, it means... It means extravagance. It means extravagance. If your name's luxury, I'm sure you are a sweet girl. Some other names. Soren is a boy's name. It means stern. Arlo is a name that means between two hills. And I added one, Bildad. It means that you loved our series in Job. Now, we may think these baby names are cute, but our culture often doesn't hold on to these meanings for the child's entire life as the mission of their life. Well, Hebrew parents named their kids, and it was the mission of their life. So Jesus, or Joshua, the name means the Lord God is salvation. Just as Joshua conquered and led the people of Israel into the promised land, so too does Jesus' name signify that he will conquer and lead his people to the promised land. That title Christ often has the meaning, the biblical meaning and title of Messiah, the anointed one who would come and reign as king, who would restore and bring peace. You see, Jesus' identity in his name, in just his name and title, it points to old promises of the past. Verse 1 also tells us that Jesus is, not just by name, the salvation and the Messiah, but also he's the son of Abraham. Now, we covered this during our Christmas season, and we'll allude to it more in the coming weeks as we go through Matthew, but Jesus is Abraham's blessing. Jesus is from the lineage of our man Abe, which should be like a gun going off in our ears because Abraham was promised to be made a great nation. He was promised that his offspring would bring blessing to the world. Right off the bat, in Matthew's account, the promises of old may be coming to fruition as were readers of it. We've been waiting for Abraham's blessing to the world. So here is his son, Abraham's son, Jesus. 
But it's really another name that I want to sit on for a moment. In verse 1, we see the son of David. God established a covenant, uh, a promise to David that from his family or descendants will come the messianic king who would sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. It was the same king that Jeremiah spoke of that we covered last week. A king would come, promised to David, a king would come and lead, rescue, and shepherd the people of God. A king would come and establish righteousness in the land and peace in our hearts. Now, imagine, it's hard to imagine in our day, imagine a king being placed on the throne and all the worries of your life just go away. You're really looking forward to the next election, aren't you? Because surely if someone is placed on the throne, all my problems go away. Well, we don't have good categories for that. It seems too good to be true. And if you're skeptical of that idea, well, it's because you're human. We know nothing of earthly kings and leaders warming our hearts and solving all our problems. That's what makes the kingship of Jesus so different. But look again carefully at verse 17 that we read. I'll just read it again. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14. Now, it's not just the content, the content of this genealogy that's informative. It's the structure, too. Verse 1 says that Jesus is the son of David. He is of kingly lineage. And in verse 17, there's this pattern of 14 generations. Why? Why the emphasis throughout 14 generations repeated? Well, I'll put a, a slide on the screen here. Now, if any of you have banged your head against the wall trying to look at or read Hebrew, you know that they don't have vowels. They have vowel points. So David's name without the vowel points would be D-V-D. With each letter, just so you know, kids, DVD used to be a disc that, ask your grandparents. With each letter in David's name, there's a numerical value, and that numerical value of David's name adding up to 14. So it's if as we read these 14, or rather 17 verses, the structure is shouting out to us as we read 14, 14, 14, David. David, David, Jesus is the son of David. His genealogy screams, the king has come. Jesus is that king. Jesus is the one who will save. Jesus' genealogy, it proves and fulfills promises of old. Now, this should, my friends, inform how we read our Bibles. Very quickly in our passage, we see that woven... In throughout the scriptures of the Old Testament is the redemptive theme of Jesus. Every historical narrative, every name, every promise ultimately brings us to the identity of Jesus. The collective 66 books of the scripture and the people in them point to the God-man, the son of David, 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 points to Christ. Well, I want us to see this next 
with Jesus, his genealogy also proves God's faithfulness. Now, throughout this big list of names in the redemptive family tree, some are more well-known than others. Now, we've mentioned a couple of the big dogs. That's what I call them, David and Abraham. But there are several prominent figures. But I want to put our attention on some lesser-known names uh, in verses 3 through 6. Now, at the end of 5 and 6, sure, you come across people like Boaz and Ruth and Jesse and David. Those might be familiar names. But in verses 3 and 4, some of those earlier names we don't know much about. Perez, Hezron, Ram. I don't know any Sunday school songs about Ram. Nashon. Solomon, all of these names are representative of a time that was fairly dark and hopeless in Israel's day. It was the era of the Judges. Now, as you may know, the book of the Judges finishes with this ominous description. Quote, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the era. That's how that era is described. In an era where Abraham's blessing and Jeremiah's king was nowhere to be found. In a time that human depravity only seemed to go deeper and deeper and it was more sinister than ever. When there was no hope on the horizon. When there was nothing good to read in the news. When old promises seemed like they would never come to pass. When future peace seemed just silly to believe in. It was at that time we have these names included. So do you think as Ram lived his life, he knew he was part of the redemptive family tree? Did Hezron predict that through him, the Christ, the conqueror Yeshua would come? No. But God was mysteriously working his good plan to rescue and to save, even when the time and the circumstances seem to dictate otherwise. And so it is today. And so it is with us today, my friends. Is God not also at work in our day? Like the days of Judges that we read in the Old Testament, we might see the world, we might see the community, we might see our church and even our own hearts at times, and we do what's right in our own eyes. Perhaps we still see the common theme of people operating in this world as if there's no king. On the daily, in our souls, we wrestle with whether the kingship of Jesus is worth following. And so does everyone else. But we often take a very negative posture towards others in this regard. So you may be frustrated with what you see on the news. You may be wringing your hands over what politician is in place and how they're legislating. You may come to the conclusion that many did in the days of Judges. Ah, the good old days are behind us. It's only gotten worse. Well, they were wrong. And that is not a Christian statement for you and I to say. God is the same today as he was yesterday, and he will be tomorrow. My friends, the goodness of God is not dependent on the ever-shifting winds of this world, but they are squarely dependent upon the very character of God. 
Just as God worked in people, through people, and for people during those days in the Judges, so He works in ours. The manifestation of God's faithfulness is evident in every generation. This genealogy reminds us, it disciples us, it teaches us, it corrects our faulty and short-sighted thinking. Now, what the enemy has meant for evil, the Lord will use for good. So let me challenge us. Young people here, don't throw shade. Look back on God's faithfulness with deep affection. Look back to the past on God's kindness and goodness. Be thankful. God has moved in mighty ways in the past, and you wouldn't be here without it. Old people, I'll let you figure out if you're in this category. Don't be snobby. Look forward to God's current and future faithfulness with deep affection and thankfulness. God is currently moving in mighty ways now in our time. Don't be so nostalgic of days gone by that you miss what God is doing now. So God was at work in verses 3 through 6. May God help us to be faithful in whatever era, whatever generation and place we take on the genealogy of human history. But let me sneak just a quick application in here. If God is working in the background of every generation and every family tree, that means your life, the life that you live, your unique slice of it has significant value. Your connection to Jesus, my friends, it ties you to something so much bigger than yourself. Your life is in conjunction with the grand redemptive narrative of Jesus. So just as everyone listed in Matthew 1 was part of a long line of people who brought fame to Jesus' name, so it is with us. Each of our lives, as we faithfully follow him, make his name known, and his family tree continues with us as we are sons and daughters of God in Christ. Your life matters. You matter. Well, lastly, I want us to see what Jesus and his genealogy, his genealogy has family problems. Now, some of you may be aware, but this isn't an exhaustive family list, and there are names not included. And that's probably a good thing. If I was building the case for the identity of a king, I would have left off more names. I won't hit all of them, but consider some of these rascals that Jesus is related to. Verse 2, Abraham tried to have his wife sleep with a king to protect his own skin. Loser. Verse 3, Judah slept with a prostitute who was his daughter-in-law who deceived him. Verse 5. Rahab was a non-Jew, but converted to true faith out of a life of prostitution. Verse 6, David took advantage of a woman, slept with her, and killed her husband. Verse 7, Rehoboam was a wicked, wicked king. That's only up to verse 7. 
unfaithful husbands, prostitutes, wicked and evil kings. Even Abraham, when he first met God, was a pagan moon worshiper. Jesus' line includes Jews and Gentiles. His line includes the moral and the immoral, male and female, imperfect and flawed people. Are you starting to feel better about your own family line and tree at this moment? I am. Surely not many of us can boast this kind of dysfunction in our family. But most of us have some dysfunction. So what's the point? This genealogy, even in structure, as we have said, screams David, 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 the king. God is faithful to the highs and the lows of this world, my nation, and my own heart. Jesus, by his very name, is the God who conquers and brings salvation. The question in the reader's mind as we go through a genealogy like this may be this. Do I qualify? Is this Jesus for me too? Am I far too gone to have Jesus fix my life, my family, and my situation? Is he only the God for one particular race, or one gender, or one kind of moral living, or one era of human history? Some of us have dysfunctional family trees, and all of us have some kind of dysfunction in our hearts. Is Jesus able to come and save me? Here's the good news. Jesus did come to save. No matter who you are, where you've come from, regardless of your previous religious bent, how messed up your family is, how flagrant your sin has been, there is grace for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a flawed, hangry, shady sinner, it seems that you fit in with Jesus' family tree. The genealogy, genealogy of Jesus points to a messed up family and a Savior who's willing to jump into the mess with his family. If you're here and you're considering Christianity this morning, you're in a good place to chew on these questions. No matter if you feel accepted by this world or even if you feel like you're accepted by well-meaning Christians in this building, you are accepted by God into the family of God when you place your faith and trust in the Savior, in the Savior who came and lived and died on the cross for the sins of his people, as dysfunctional as they may have been. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no room for self-righteousness as we see where we've all come from and what we've been saved from. Now, if you're here and you are a faithful follower of Christ, here's a really simple question to wrestle with. And it's one I've had to ask myself repeatedly. Have we lost our awe in wonder at the beauty of Jesus? I have. We go through times and seasons where we do. The Christ, the son of David, the one who came to save us, am I in awe and wonder of who he is and what he's done? 
Have we allowed our hearts to wander, perhaps prone to leave and ghost the God you love? There's a good place for you here today as well, if that's you. The identity of Jesus found in the scriptures here in our passage in Matthew 1 is meant to recalibrate our minds and hearts back to who he is and what he's done. If Jesus fulfills old promises, if Jesus works in every era of human history, if he graciously loves and uses people like us and our family trees, if that's true, well, then we have great reason to rejoice. We have great reason to live for him. We have great reason to worship together, to serve, to leverage our time, our money, and our families, to see his message and his goodness and his gospel go out to our community and to the ends of the earth. If this genealogy is true, then may the Lord help us live in 2023 as though we actually believe it. I have a, a poem here. It's a silly poem. But I think it, it connects the genealogy with Jesus and what we're about to take here with communion. And the poem goes like this. Most times my mother makes me laugh. Sometimes I think she's insane. But then again, she may look at me and think the very same. The genealogy of Jesus in the family tree in, in which he's come from recalibrates our minds and our thinking to understand I'm part of his family tree. Collectively, in Christ, I don't simply come to stare at the back of people's heads on Sundays, but I'm in family, in Christ, in community with those around me. And yeah, sure, sometimes I think they're insane. Sometimes we may look at each other differently. We may talk and act in a different fashion. We may have different experiences and a background. We may have different opinions as to whether or not the Vikings are the holy team from the holy land. And they are. But in Christ, we are one. I'll ask those who are serving communion to come forward. And I want to remind us as we are about to take communion that in the providence and the wisdom of Jesus, he instituted communion knowing that we would come on a Sunday morning like this and have questions. Jesus, am I connected to your family tree? Jesus, is this Christian life, this faithful following thing, is this a solo thing? Is it just me and you? Oh, no. We take communion in community with one another. Communion is the tangible, physical reminder of some pretty amazing realities. You are part of God's family tree in Christ. And you are a part of one another. So who takes communion? Communion is for the faithful follower of Christ. The one who needs to be reminded on a January 1, yes, 2022 has passed. God, this year, are you still real and for me? And as you touch that wafer, that bread, and drink that juice, you'll have a physical reminder that just as the promises of God are real, 
This too is real. He's with you and in you and for you. If you're here and you are not a faithful follower or you're someone who's been in sin, you're someone who's been unrepentant and you're saying, yes, I'm following Jesus, but I have sin to take care of first in my life. Well, the scriptures plainly communicate that this is actually a dangerous meal to take if you are not right with God. So if you are not a believer or struggling with sin, we have help for you here. We want to help you allow this to go by and press into the people here and ask for forgiveness. Ask for someone to pray with you. Seek to have your relationship with God first restored. So allow me just to say a short prayer and then we'll observe communion together in a moment. Father, that, that is our prayer that communion wouldn't simply be something cute that Christians do on the first Sunday of a month. But it is a very spiritual, as Paul says, participation with you in us as we're reminded of the promises of God. As we're reminded that the genealogy of Christ screams that he's king, proves that he's faithful in every generation. And God, that he can even be a part of families like ours. So would you warm our hearts as we take this? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.